how wonderful it is to, uh, to have a word of God that we can read this morning. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, the church of Laodicea. He says, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. That's a terrible place to be. Neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know, and this is terrible, I do not know, that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and open the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Have you got ears this morning? Hear what the Spirit says to you this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and the public reading of your word. And as I say many times, Father, even if we close the Bible now, I thank you that your word has been spoken, Lord. We've heard your word, the very words of Jesus Christ. And we have this promise, Lord, that it will not go out and return back void. But it will accomplish everything that it's been purposed for. This morning, Father, I pray that the purpose of the word burning in your hearts, Lord, is to listen and to apply our lives to what it says to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the church in Laodicea, the lukewarm church, it is interesting to see that Paul mentioned this church as well in the book of Colossa. If you look at Colossa chapter 2 verse 1, he says, For I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So Paul is saying here that he's got a great conflict for the church in Colossa and also for the church in Laodicea. Then I find it very interesting that when our Lord Jesus Christ writes seven letters that He picked the church in Laodicea. And we've just read the message that He said to them. He said that you are lukewarm. You have compromised so far that you can do nothing with them anymore. And this is what's happening with them. So he writes it to them. And then in Colossians chapter 4 verse 16, he writes again, he says, Now when this epistle is read amongst you, see that it is read also in the church of, of the Laodiceans, 
and that you likewise read the epistle of Laodicea. So here is a letter that he writes to the church in Colossae, and he addresses a few things in that letter. So you need to understand the letter to Colossae to understand what he's trying to say. But it's also interesting that if you see that there was also a letter which was written to the church in Laodicea. He says that you also read the epistle from Laodicea where? In the church of Colossae. That means that Paul wrote many other letters, which is not in the Bible. Now, we're not going to make those letters Bible letters, no. The canon is made up. What's in the Bible is there. But out there is also a letter which he actually addressed, Paul, addressed to the church in Laodicea, which they had to read in the church of Colossae. So what is so interesting about this letter that he wrote to the church in Colossae? Well, it addresses false teachings, false doctrines. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. So he also wrote to them, but the most important letter for me this morning is the one that Jesus Christ wrote to this church in Colossa. He addresses that. So let's look at our map again. You will find that Laodicea is the bottom city out of all of these up there. Again, if you look at the mail route from Pecanum up at the top, it ends down here in Laodicea. It is also part of this gate or this door, open door into Asia Minor, but not also that, also to the east, to the east side, is that the door open there. Laodicea. The name Laodicea means the rule of people. And I want you to think about the church today. The rule of people. It was one of the most wealthiest cities of its time. And there's three reasons for that, three distinct reasons. First of all, it was for the textile industry in that place. They had pure black wool there. It was so famous. It was sold all over the world. And the people who was doing that made a lot of money. There's a lot of wealth that came into that city. Uh, right through Rome, right, uh, the, the merchants came together there and they would buy this wool at a high price and take it all over. So a lot of money started flowing in. Not only that, it was also a mecca, a city of medicine. It is one of the renowned medical schools of his days was there. And there was also a temple uh, to Asclepios. That is where they made, started made, making pills and medicine, pharmaceuticals, which in our day, if you can see, it makes a lot of money, isn't it? But also back in the day, these people were set up there. Now because of the the soil that was in the area, they made salt out of the soil. And they say that this salt was so good that you can put it on your eyes. Not only did it make you younger, but it healed your eyes if you had eye problems. Uh, and also on the ears, if people had ear problems, they made salt out of the soil, and you can start putting it onto your ears. It was so famous that Again, like the textile, like the wool and everything, it started selling right over the world. And it caused for a lot of wealth to come into the city area. And they were so wealthy that in around about 100 AD, there was a massive earthquake, similar to the ones that happened up north. There was such a big earthquake there. And when the Caesar wanted to reach out and give them money to rebuild, they said, no, 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 we don't need that. We've got our own. We look after ourselves and our wealth will build ourselves up. And they did. 
So with all of this money coming in and all of these trade coming in, you can just think that this will become then a financial mecca of the world, banking systems. It also became the first place of currency exchange. And where lenders happened, they started lending out money. So all of those things combined make this place a very, very wealthy place. More wealthy than any of the other cities around them. So that was good for them. But we also know that the love of money corrupts, isn't it? It's not good. And we will see that playing out. And again, I want you to think about when I tell you about the circumstances. Within this wealthy city, there's a church. There's a Christian church. And we will see, as we have already read through, how the influence of wealth into the church is affecting the spiritual wealth of the church. It corrupts it. But they also had a problem at this place. And the problem was their water supply. There was no natural, there was a river coming through there, but it was running for the, from the Hierapolis where there was hot springs there. Uh, we know the hot springs that we can go down to and just relax and lie in the nice warm water. But you don't just lie in that warm water and start drinking that water, do you? Because it doesn't taste good. It feels bad. It makes you nauseous. So with this water coming into the city from the hot springs, by the time it reached the city, it was lukewarm. And when you drink lukewarm water, it doesn't satisfy the thirst. In fact, you can't do a lot of things with this lukewarm water. Such a big problem was it for them, and so much money did they have, they wanted to solve the problem. So on the other side of the city, there were high mountains. And what do you find on the top of high mountains? Snow. So this snow would then flow and start going into rivers, and that's ice-cold water. So with the money they had, they started solving this problem. They built a canal, a channel from this mountain to run some of this cold water down into the city, and they did. But the problem is that when it was on the mountain, it was cold. But by the time it came to the city, that water was lukewarm. They mixed it at some point with the lukewarm water and it became lukewarm. It was so said that in, in passages that I read that when soldiers would come down and they see the water and they were thirsty and they were sweaty and they came to the water where they would drink the water, but they couldn't consume the water and they would spat it out. Hence, our Lord Jesus Christ used what these people know very well in this letter to them. Don't you find it fascinating? He knows their circumstances and what is going. So, we've got two things here. We've got wonderful textile industry, medicine, and we've got wealth, and, and it's going so well in the city. And then they've got this one problem. They do not have good water supply. So, Jesus describes him to this church then according to their circumstances. Let's have a look. In verse 14 he says, And to the angel of the church of the Lydiaceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation. Three things he says to them. So we need to ask our question, why would he choose this title? Addressing them, I just gave you their circumstances, how the city looks and where this church is in. Why would he start talking to this church using that title? Well, let's have a look at the first one. He says, the Amen. Did you know that one of Jesus' names is also Amen? It's his name. 
He applied that to himself there. And amen means, so be it. It means that it is stand firm and it's trustworthy. Now think again if we think what we've read about the church. They were neither hot, they were neither cold, they were lukewarm. Were they trustworthy? No, they were not. So when he speaks to them and he uses this title, this is the amen, the trustworthy one, the one who stands. I think it is very applicable to these circumstances that when they look at what they were failing in, the one who's not failing in that was standing in front of them and talking to them. The amen. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, uh, uh, Paul writes down, he says, For all the promises of God in Him are yes, and in Him is what? Amen. What does it mean? It means so be it. It stands fast. And in Him it's amen to the glory of God through us. So when we pray after a prayer, what do we say? Everybody say amen. What do you say in fact? You say, so be it. We prayed for blessing and, and, and we said, Lord, protect her. And the whole church said, amen. So be it. Not only did we use those words to confirm the prayer, but we were calling on Jesus. He's the only one. He's the only one who can stand trustworthy. He's the only one in this world who is the so be it. It is, you know, the Bible is so fantastic. It repeats itself over and over again. Just different words sometimes. He is so trustworthy. Friend, he is the anchor of our lives. He is the foundation. And this is what he tells that church and he talks to you and me today the same thing. Today, he's the amen for us. Yes? Absolutely. Then he says, the faithful and true witness. The word for witness in Greek there is martyr. You know what it means? It means it's somebody who will die for his cause. It's somebody who is so sure and trustworthy, who's the so be it. But not only that, he says, I am so be it, but I will also die for what I believe in. And then he says, he's the faithful one, and he's also the true one. And if you think again about this church, they neither hot, they neither cold, they lukewarm. You know what happens with that? One day we're over here, one day we're over there, and a new thing comes through, and then we jump on that bandwagon. They're all over the place. And you know what it is? It's nauseous. It makes you nauseous, and you just want to vomit it out. He uses strong words here, to vomit, not spitting it out. I don't know between you and me, but there's a difference in my life when I spit something out and I vomit something out. The one is more uglier than the other one, isn't it? The one makes you feel more sicker than the other one. In fact, this whole thing makes you sick. Now he comes here and he says, look, he's not the one who makes you sick. He's faithful. And not only is he faithful, he's the true witness. Faithfulness means he went all the way to the cross to die for you and for me. He was hot on that. He wasn't cold or nor there. He was absolutely true and he stood fast in what he did. They were not. That is why he chooses that title. Then he says, the third thing he says, the beginning of the creation of God. The beginning of the creation of God. It doesn't mean that, you know, when creation began, when he was born. He wasn't born, he existed. So when you look at the Greek for that word, 
the, the Greek for the beginning of creation, it means ruler or source of origin. That's the Greek meaning. He was the source and the, of the origin of this. Or he, he, everything was created through him and by him and for him. Colossians chapter 1 verse 4. Go and read it. So there's two things that he addresses through this last one. First of all, he addresses the people power in the church of that day. Remember the word Laodicea means the rule of people. And this is where we find democracy. You see, it means that the, major, the major, majority of people rule and not God. You see, God's rule is theocracy. That is when God is in charge of everything. But what happened in this church now, and it's the same today, is that people rule. The spirit of the world has taken over the spirit of the church and it is kicked out the king of the church. We find that in this passage at one stage that he says, look, I stand at the door and I knock. So what happened? They've thrown out the kingdom of God out of the church. And what did they bring in? They brought in people rule. That's why now you have all of these major pastors, you know, I'm the man with my leadership team and we rule the church. People rule. God never intended the church to be like that. Never. You see, now it's everything is decided on popularity and on voting. We're going to vote about this thing, you know, and see what the people think about it. That was never God's intent. And that's happened in this church. Hence, now you've got hot, lukewarm and cold. It's all over the place again. So now I ask you then, if you have now this voting system in, where is the Holy Spirit in all of this? Where is the working of God in all of this? Oh, but we have to have our councils and we have to have all of these things. Yes, I understand that there is a leadership that needs to be in the church, but let's keep it the biblical leadership. You know what the Bible says? The eldership. The eldership looks over the church. Now you might say, yes, it is people rule. No, no, no. Go and read what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, go and appoint elders. Let me tell you this. You do not vote elders into a church. Elders get appointed. Go and read what Paul says to Timothy. Let's face it. Let's say it as it is in the Bible. But here we find a church now where there's the rule of people and the majority rules. And hey, if we don't like you, whether you say the word of God, you know what we're going to do as the mob? We're going to push you out. Because people rule. You see, the church of Laodicea thought that they were rich. They thought they had everything going. And that is so the same today. I look at some of these mega churches today and what you find is people rule. The Spirit of God is not in the place anymore. I'm not asking you this morning, I'm telling you. The second thing that he addresses by this by saying that he's the beginning of creation of God, is angel worship in that church. You see, there were a group of people in the church of Colossa that came and they tried to pull people back under the law. And there were a second group who came and they took the people and they tried to bring them under angel worship, Jews. And they said, look, we need to worship the angels. Because they are heavenly beings. And this is why Paul writes to the church of Colossae. To warn them not to do that. 
In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Who's the him he's talking about? Jesus Christ. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The fullness of the Godhead. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. This is the message to the church in Colossae. But remember he said, read that also for the Laodiceans. And in uh, Colossae chapter 2 verse 15 he says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So Jesus Christ is what? He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But in this church, not only were they people power, but they were starting worshipping other things. I'll tell you now, we see in these days all of these things coming out, this angel worship and there's all of these things happening in churches these days. Under the banner of Christianity. So that's the title. He says in verse 15, I know your works. You have, that you are either neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. How disgusting is that? To vomit out of my mouth. You see what he's saying here? He says you are sitting on the fence. And we've got so many fence sitters here uh, today in this world. People will not take a stance on certain things. Look at abortion these days. How many churches wouldn't take a stance on that? Oh, they will meddle around with words and going here, going there, but they will not. You know what that church is? They are lukewarm. What about gay and lesbianism? There's not churches who will take a stance on that. They will say, no, it's all right. You know that God created, they made them like that. That's a lie. You cannot be created as a gay or a lesbianism. That's a choice you make. It's a sinful choice. Yet there is churches today who won't make a point on that. And I can go down the list on and on and on and on. They do not want to preach out against sin anymore. They sit on the fence and they will allow these things to happen. You see, one of the most frustrated things for people to be in is to have too much of the world to be happy in Jesus. Too much in the, of the world. And then you have too much of Jesus to be happy in the world. What a terrible place that is. You enjoy the world too much. Oh yes, I know I need to uh, you know, worship Jesus and all of that. And then you go into the world to have fun. And then what happens? You think, I've got too much of Jesus in me to absolutely give over to the world. And you're sitting in this frustrating place. You know what the Bible calls it? It calls it lukewarmness. Jesus calls it lukewarmness. And you know what he says he's going to do? He's going to expel you out. He's going to drive you out. He's going to vomit you out of his mouth. The lukewarm church is a picture of indifference and compromise. Indifference. Have you seen people who's indifferent? It's so frustrating to work with them. It's so hard to work with indifferent people. They can't make up their mind. You want to make a decision and there's no decisiveness there. It takes time, it drags on, and you know what happened? It procrastinates. Eventually you do nothing. And so many people are doing that. Oh, I am going to be on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh yes, I am going to do that. And you know what happens with I am? So I am not going to do that. And I don't do that then. 
Lukewarmness is also a picture of uselessness. Like it says, he will vomit it out of your mouth. If you think of hot water, what can you do with that? You can heal. Hot water is a healing compound. And cold water is a nice refreshment on a hot day. They say it's going to be 30 degrees this afternoon. I want you to do me a favor. Go and make some uh, lukewarm water for you when you're really thirsty. And go out in the sun and take a big, just down the whole glass and see how you feel. And then after that, go and take a really ice-cold glass of water and walk out into the same sun and drink it. I'll tell you, you'll find a difference. And here it is, dear friends. He says that he will vomit them out of his mouth. How terrible is that? Verse 17, he says, Because you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, and poor, blind, and naked. This now is one of the most terrible things that you can find somebody in. They're living in a lie and they don't even know they're living in a lie. You see, I've described to you the circumstances surrounding this church. It's a wealthy city. So now that money has flooded into the church. And it's affected the church. Remember, Jesus is not writing to the city here. He writes to the church. He says to the church, you say, I'm rich. Oh, I'm, look at us. I am so rich. And this richness then carries over into their spiritual life. And you know what people say? They look at them and they say, look at those rich people. They must be great Christians. Isn't that true? Look, I'm telling you, I know of churches that you have to now buy membership into the church. Oh, you've got to put in your tithing, but then you pay your membership as well. And the way you pay your membership determines where you sit in church. So the front two rows, we should, maybe Oscar, we should look into this, shouldn't we, eh, John? The front rows, if you sit in the front rows, it's $500 a pop, man. You can sit $500, you sit right there. And then $250, and then, and then I mean, look, if, if you really don't have money, you sit in the cheap seats down at the back. Or you stand, yeah. <laughs> and this is what happens into churches. Look, I'm telling you, I look at certain churches these days, and man, they are rich. The amount of money that's spent in buildings and equipment to influence people these days is in the millions. But I'll tell you one thing, and I want you to listen to this that those people who are in charge of those churches will stand one day before the King of Kings and they will give an account of every single dollar spent on vanity. Because that's what it is. Oh, I'm rich, Jesus said. He says, look at you. You look, you look down at the other churches who got nothing. And you, say, and you say, look, you haven't got the numbers, you haven't got the money. Oh, no, no, you know, we don't even worry about you. I'm so rich. I see some of them driving around with personalized number plates. I've heard a song this week. Somebody was singing a song in the church where it says, I'm a billionaire. Yeah, I'm rich, it says, and it goes on, you see. And that wealth influenced their spiritual lives. And it made them prideful and boastful. See what we've achieved. But in fact, they were miserable. He says, he, he says in that piece, he says, you have become wealthy and you had a need of nothing. You see, they've become so wealthy that they don't even need Jesus anymore. 
Hey, Jesus, just stand over there. Let us show you how to run this show. Let us show you how things should be done. You can take some notes of us. Learn from us. This is the attitude of the church today. They won't preach it to you. They'll give you two lines of scripture and then we'll fellowship for the next hour. Hey, we've spent so much money on all of these equipment and smoke machines and lights and everything. We better use them. We better use them. And you know what? They draw people's money out of their pockets. Poor people's money. They, they play on them, on their feelings. And they draw them out of it. And, and just to, to solve their minds, you know what they do? They say, oh, we've got this missionary out. And they'll show you the missionary and the photos and all of these things. It's all about richness these days. Now the sad thing for me in this whole passage, in verse 17 is, and do not know that you are wretched. Oh, you are so up yourself and you're so up into what you've done and you're so boastful and prideful and this is the thing. You do not know and I feel sorry for a lot of these people because they don't know that they are miserable and they are wretched and poor and blind and naked. The worst kind of hypocrites is the hypocrites who don't know they are hypocrites. Shall I say that again? The worst kind of hypocrites are hypocrites who don't know they are hypocrites. They are in the state of self-deception concerning their spiritual condition. They deceive themselves. Um, they walk around with self-confidence and no God-confidence. And I'll tell you what happens with them when there comes a crisis time in their lives. They fall apart. They lose their faith. You see a lot of these wrecks along the, the, the highway of these big churches where they follow this kind of worship. There are a lot of wrecks along the way of this. In, uh, so what is Jesus telling them what to do? In verse 18 he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame on your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see as many as I love I rebuke and chasten them therefore be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone who hears my voice open the door I will come into him and dine with him and he with me so there's three things that he says for them to do. He says, first of all, for them, buy from me gold that's refined by fire, that you may be rich. This is a different kind of richness he's talking about. It's not a richness in mullah and, and money, because, friend, that stays behind. When you die, all the money that you've worked up so hard, you know what? Somebody else is going to spend it. I see people and they work up so for the old day and it's good. I'm not saying you should just live recklessly. But people are saving so up and oh, you know, when I'm going to retire, when I'm going to retire, and some never retire. And you know, they came to a point and they've got all of these riches in the bank and then they are too old to enjoy that. And what happens? Something happens to them and, and their children take over and they spend their money. They didn't work hard for them and, and we know that easy come is easy go. That's right, isn't it? If you haven't worked for it, you can't appreciate it. And again, look, please, don't listen to me wrong here. I'm not saying that you shouldn't look after your children. You should. And so should children look after parents. 
But this is a different kind of riches he's talking about here. He says, buy for me so that you may be rich. Look at Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1. The prophet writes, he says, ho! That means stop. Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, what do you do? Shall we put you in the cheap seats or in the standing seats outside? Or just wait there at the door? If you've got no money, you're not welcome. He says, no, no. His economy scales works different. He says, if you do not have money, you're in a good place. Why? Because he continues to say, come. He invites the poor. Buy and eat. Now you might say, how can I buy anything? There's no freelancers in life. And then he says, yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Oh, you who've got no money, come and buy wine and bread and milk. He's talking spiritually here. We are rich in your Lord Jesus Christ. Paul greets the church in Ephesus. He says, I greet you with all of the heavenly blessings. How much more do we have? You might be a pauper on this earth, but in heaven you're a king, you're a prince. You're a, you're, you're a priest and a king. How wonderful is that? So he says, come and buy from me refined in fire. They might think you pull out the money and you start paying. No, no, this is a different. You can't buy your way into heaven. The second thing he says to them to do is he says, come and get white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness not be revealed. Everybody this morning came into church with clothes. It would have been a shame if you walked in here naked, wouldn't it? Now again, he's not talking physically, he's talking in a spiritual sense, that when you appear before the Lord, you've got to have a white garment. Now there's people who's not going to have a white garment appearing before Him, and they will be shown in all of their nakedness. That nakedness, friend, is not only bodily nakedness, it's the things which you try to hide from the world. The secret things that only you know. And, and guess who knows as well? God knows. And guess who knows as well if it's a sin? Satan knows. And you know what? I can strip you naked here physically in church and it will be a massive shame, wouldn't it be? But that's physical. But what if I start opening up? What if this big screen here, I can put you next to it and somehow it deflects every single thought you had for the last week? What if it flows on? You will be naked, exposed to everybody. And now he says, come and put on white garments. What is in whiteness? It is clear. It is pure. He says, come and do this. And then thirdly, he also says, Anoint your eyes with eye salve. You see, they made these salve in those places. They took the soil and they put it on the eyes and the ears to hear. And here he comes, he says, you know the physical thing. You make the physical thing. It brings you a lot of money in. But look at the salve I'm talking about. It's a different kind of salve. He says, anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. This is again speaking spiritually. 
It's not just seeing the church and going to church. No, no. It is knowing and seeing Jesus Christ and see the light, the light that shines into your dark heart. And once that light shines in, there is no shadow there anymore. It's wonderful that he picked these three things for them to do. And then he continues in verse 19. He says, as many as I love, and I love it every time that Jesus spoke, he uses the word agape, which means sacrificial love. Here he uses the Greek word filio, which means it is that brotherly, it's that, that, that commitment love. He says, for many as I love, what do I do with them? I rebuke and chasten them. Oh, the chastening of the Lord. Some people, when the Lord chastens them, they give the devil all the honors for that. But the Lord is sorting them out. God does that. You know, I've, I've had three children. And in the world, they say you cannot smack your children, but we did. And there's nothing wrong with them. I got a smack when I was young. I, I haven't lost it, have I? Hopefully I didn't. Otherwise, I might deceive myself. But chastening is good. In, in fact, the Bible says, do not spare the rod in Proverbs. And, and in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11, he says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. He says to this church, there's three things I want you to do. And then he says, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Listen, lukewarm church, listen, ladies here. There is coming a correction. And let this be a prophetic word for the churches today who are operating in the spirit of Laodicea. There is coming a correction. And only the churches, listen to me this morning, only the churches who stand on the word of God will not be corrected because the word is a correction in itself. If you live by the word, it is your plumb line. If you operate your whole life on the Word, there's no correction because the Word is correcting you all the way. But if you go off on this tangent, if you follow in this lukewarm state of yours, there is coming a correction. And I tell you one thing, when I was smacked, it hurts. It hurts. My dad said, bend over, and I bend over, and he says, if you pull up, I give you two more. Man, and I grinded it out. But I wouldn't pull up. I did it once and he gave me two more. And I said, no, no, I don't want another two more. And you know, it was sore. I was crying like a baby. And I thought, I'm not going to do that again. Let me just throw it in here. I believe the psychology, psychology way of doing children today is not working. Sometimes if somebody's not, you just give them a smack on the right. I'm not saying, you know, mishandling children, whack them over the years. Or no, no, you give them a good smack on the bottom. I believe God made a bottom for a few reasons, to sit down and to get a smack on it. My children can tell you, they got, they, and, and you know what? It, it breeds discipline. Like, like never, but you, you won't believe it. I see so many children throwing tantrums in malls. You're walking past and they're lying black. <laughs> My children never did that because they knew. There comes a correction. There comes a time that we're going to be around and I'm going to say, you remember what you've done. Now let's think through these things. You're going to get three smacks on your bum. And if you pull up, guess what? You're going to get another two. They never pulled up. <laughs> but there comes a correction. And you know what he says in this passage here? He says, I do it because I love you. 
Now, I know I've thrown in all about, you know, correcting our children, but if you correct your children, if you smack your children without love, friend, you, that's not the God's way of correcting children. I, I heard so much, you know, when Gavin Richard and Syria, when I smacked him, I heard so much inside of you. How, how can I do this? How can I get my beautiful little princess to bend over and get a smack on the back? How can you do that? It hurts me as much as it hurts, and I told him so many times. But you see, that's the love of God. He corrects, and there's coming a correction for the church. He says, therefore, be zealous. That's the same word, to become hot. To be hot for God, to be zealous. To have energy for God and repent. And again, we find find our word repentance here. It amazes me how these days we've got people who come to Christ, you ask them to tell their testimony, and there's no word about, I've repented. None. And I ask and I put a question mark around their salvation. He says, repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears, <coughs> if anyone hears my voice, my voice, and opens the door, I will come into him and have fellowship and dine with him and he with me. Oh, this verse has been used so many times out of context. Friend, the reason here, because, the reason for this verse is because in the church, he was put on the outside. He's not evident in the church anymore. There are churches today who's got, and, and just look at the names. Look, here I go again. Just look at the names of churches today. You know, Bridge. W- w- what Christian name is that? You church. What, what name is that? You see, the problem is they've taken Christ out of the church. Christ is not in the name anymore. And if you dare have a name where Christ is in the name of the church, people won't go there anymore. Because that's not cool anymore. You see, we're neither hot nor cold, we're lukewarm, it's not cool. We go with popular opinion. Remember, this is a church who's governed by people. We've got to be seeker sensitive now. We now have to go into, into everywhere and get people to fill out a form and say, what do you like about church and why don't you like about church? And then when we see the things they don't like, well, I don't like when we have communion in church because it is a really bad thing to think about the blood and Jesus Christ's body. We're living in a society now. We, no, we don't want our children. We don't like that. You know what the churches do? Then they cut communion out. Oh, we don't like to hear about Jesus anymore because, you know, he was a troublemaker. He came and he made trouble. And look how he died. And now they cut Jesus out. Hence he says now, I'm standing on the outside and I'm knocking. And that's not this kind of knock. His knocking is with his voice because that's the key to opening the door. You hear his voice. And once you hear the voice, you need to open the door. Listen, what happened to Adam in the Garden of Eden? They were standing there and God said, you shall not eat of the fruit. And what did they do? They ate and they fell into sin. And then the next passage, go and check me out. In the, you know, go and do fact checking if you want to do that. This is no fake news. If you go into Genesis, when he heard the voice of the Lord, what did he do? He hid himself. The voice of God is speaking today, but it's silenced by the popular opinion. The voice of God today is in your word, but people don't want it anymore. Sadly, Jesus is standing outside now and he's knocking. And the occupant, the churches needs to get him back into the church. 
And the only way for them to get him back into the church is to repent of their pride and their self-confidence and self-sufficiency. Now let's finish off. He says in verse 21, To him who overcome I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat on my father and on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. What a wonderful place to be. If you overcome, see what's going to happen, friend. I will grant to sit with me on my throne. How wonderful is that? To think for a short few years not to live a lukewarm life will give you to sit with Jesus on His throne. But if you think that's only His throne, He says, also, I, uh, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. So we are going to sit with Jesus on the Father's throne. How wonderful is that? To, to, we can't even imagine that. Can you imagine what I've just said to you? Our brains is too small to think about that. But one day we will see and how wonderful that is going to be. So that's the letter to the church, the lukewarm church. The warning here is to you and me. Are you lukewarm? Are you in the same place? So we look now at the seventh parable in Matthew chapter 13, the last parable there. He says in Matthew 13 verse 47, Again the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full they threw it, uh, drew it to the shore and they sat down and gathered the goods into the vessel, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be a waning and a gnashing of teeth. Can you see how this relates to the seventh church again? He says that every kind is there. They will gather every kind where in there was the good and there was also the bad. And then this connection, he says, but he will throw them bad away. So what will he do with the bad of the lukewarmness? He will vomit them out. He will throw them out. Friend, there's one more dangerous thing which I need to warn you here. He says, and he will cast the bad ones into the furnace of fire. I've said it and I'm going to say it again and again and again and again. There is an actual lake of fire. There is an actual hell where the bad ones will go to, where the ones who's vomited out will go to. And it is a furnace of fire. It is a torment. And if he said so, it will be so. Jesus repeats about the hell so many times. Yet these days you can't preach hell from the pulpits anymore. The people will run away. He said it twice now. And here he says it now again. He says, there will be a wailing and a gnashing of teeth. And I've heard somebody said, for the people who lost their teeth on earth, you know, false teeth will be supplied. <laughs> but there will be a gnashing of teeth. Have you seen somebody gnashing on their teeth with pain? I have. This will be worse than that. There will be a wailing and a gnashing of teeth. That's the seven churches. Now, a lot of scholars and a lot of uh, commentators has put these seven churches into different ages of the church <coughs> which if you do that <coughs> excuse me if you do that it applies i want to say this morning that each one of these churches at some stages apply to every church today 
You find a lot of churches where you walk in, it's a loveless church. Oh, they preach love from the pulpit. We're a loving church, but there's no love. There's love from the pulpit, but once it comes, where Jesus was walking slowly amongst the people, knowing the people, touching them, there was none, none of that love. There's churches like that today. They're strong on the word, but no love. There's churches who compromised. There's so many compromising going on. There's churches who's corrupt today. There's churches who's absolutely dead. And then there's lukewarm churches. Uh, so some scholars said, you know, if you look through the church history, you can apply these churches to them. Ephesus, for instance, was the apostolic age, which was before AD 100. And there was a time there where this could be applied to the church, what happened. And then, remember, Ephesus was the loveless church. Smyrna was the persecuted church. And there was an age of persecution that happened over time, between 100 and 313 AD. You remember Polycarp, he was living in those days. And there was a lot of uh, martyrdom going on. And then we had uh, Pacamos. Uh, that was the imperial age when, you, you know, they started uh, compromising uh, the church and, and state. And we had Tythyra, the age of the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church, when they started coming, the corruptness that came into the church, it was all corrupted. And then when Sardis came, the dead church, and then the Reformation took place. And, and although I don't follow them, but you know, the work that was done by Calvin and, and by those people were important. Because if it wasn't for, for Martin Luther... That, that stuck against this church. If it wasn't for him, the Bible wouldn't have been translated into German and, and into other languages. So although, like I say, you know, I'm, I'm not saying he, he, there's a lot of things fault in the, what they still held on. But, you know, there's a reformation that took place. And, and listen to me, there's no need for another reformation to take place like the New Apostolic Reformation is now proclaiming. It's already taken place. The Enlightenment came to the people. Back in the day there, they said, you know, only the priest can read the Bible and the people need to follow. You need to believe me what I say. And we know all of the atrocities that happened through that. Even to this day, what happens in the Roman Catholic Church? So there was a definite age there where the church was dead. And there had to come a breakthrough in that. And then when you think about Philadelphia, the brotherly love church, and uh, that was a missionary age. And how wonderful was that? And we saw that. We saw stadiums filled with people. And you know why? Because they were hungry for the Word of God. And there were so many people who filled stadiums. Now, again, some of those people, I don't believe in what they preached or what they stood for. But one thing in that age that I picked up is that there was a genuine return to the Word of God. And when you bring the Word of God back into the church, what, bring, what do you bring back? Life. You've had big movements going on. And then we find Laodicea, and there's a lot of people who believe that we are now in the time of Laodicea, and we are. If you look at churches today, it's an age of apostasy. You know, I read the Bible, and I read this about the apostasy, and it's going to be in the end of days, and I thought, how? I wonder how it's going to be. Because there's people now preaching from pulpits and say, oh, there's going to be a big revival. And they preach revival, revival. I don't read about revival before the Lord Jesus comes. I don't. Oh, they talk about Pensacola. They talk about uh, Toronto. This was all facts. This is not from God. None of those movements were from God. 
You say, but wait a minute, there are so many people who said that they came to Christ out of those movements. I want to say it's not because of those movements they came to Christ, it's instead of those movements they came to Christ. Because if God can speak through a donkey, He can speak through some of that as well. Now, I'm not saying that was valid. I say it's error out of the pit of a lot of the things happening. So there's not a reformation coming. I see there's an apostasy coming. And listen, it's not coming, it is already here. The apostasy is already here. The apostasy is here. It's now. We find now churches who don't want to read the Bible anymore. So we had this age of mi- uh, the, the, the uh, missionary age coming, and the Bible was you know, brought back. But what happens now? It's now watered down again. And it's not hot, it's not cold, it's lukewarm. And now, you know, uh, uh, Peter says, he says, judgment will start in the house of God. Why? Because there is apostasy in the house of God. If you take the word of God out of the church, it's apostate. Done. Finish and clear. That means end. That's South African for end. You can't change around that. And that's where the church is today. Now, when I end now, can somebody call my lovely wife, please? We're going to sing a song in the next few minutes. But listen to this now. We can talk about the church, but my, my interest now is, where are you this morning? Where are you sitting? You know, it's easy for us. We can point fingers to churches and we can say, look at that bunch. Look at that crowd over there. They don't preach the word anymore. Look at those hop, skip, and jumpers over there. But the question here, friend, and the whole revelation is about you. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord says. That makes it personal. If there cometh a day when there's a judgment on the church, listen to me, there cometh a day where there will be a judgment on your life. Who's sitting here and hearing my words today. How are you traveling this morning? Are you hot? Are you cold? You see, Jesus don't want us cold. He says, whether you're hot or cold. No, no. He don't want us. He wants us hot. He wants us zealous for Him. He wants us energized for Him. Have we learned a lot out of the seven churches? We're, We're in a difficult time. But praise God, He's alive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You this morning for Your Word. I thank You this morning, Lord, that as we preached about these seven churches, that You spoke to us individually and collectively. And Father, yes, this is a serious thought. That not only is this for churches, it's us. We are the church. So I pray through Your Holy Spirit, Lord, that You search our hearts Father, show us if we are hot or cold. And show us if we are lukewarm. Father, I don't want to be spat out of your mouth and vomited out out of your mouth one day. No. I pray through the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you help us. Show us your way, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. And I thank you for that. Amen.